Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. James Acaster is a stand-up comic from London. He's appeared on a bunch of TV shows over there. Mock of the Week, Taskmaster, Hypothetical, lots of others. On stage, he's observational, a little absurd, and also animated, but cutting. Maybe you saw that clip of him on social media recently where he calls out transphobia in the kind of comedians who call themselves edgy. And I understand your concern. Most edgy comics look like me, race and gender-wise. They say whatever they like. Edgy comedians, no one tells them what they can and can't say. They walk straight on stage, top of their specials sometimes, do ten solid minutes just slagging off transgender people. Just straight out the gate, just making fun of transgender people. If people on the internet get upset about it, the comedian's always like, bad luck! That's my job! I'm a stand-up comedian! I'm meant to challenge people! If you don't like being challenged, don't watch my shows! What's the matter, guys? Too challenging for you? That's from his most recent special, Cold Lasagna, Hate Myself, 1999. Acaster is also prolific. This past month, he released James Acaster's Guide to Quitting Social Media, a self-help book about, I mean, I think you can figure out what it's about. It's his third book. Like I said, he's prolific. When I talked with James Acaster, it was 2018. He just released his first Netflix special called James Acaster Repertoire. It's four hour-long live specials. It's really, really funny. Here's a bit from it. I don't get hammered on my own, by the way. I don't get trashed. I just get tipsy. Tipsy is the best thing you can be in life, is tipsy. There's four things you can be in life. Sober, tipsy, drunk, hungover. (laughs) Tipsy's the only one out of the four where you don't cry during it. (laughs) Should have warned you earlier, some of the jokes are sad. You've got to choose your soft drink when you're getting tipsy. Make sure every other drink is a soft drink. Sustain it, maintain it. <laughs> I'm a Dr. Pepper man. I love Dr. Pepper, and I claim to understand it. I'm not that arrogant. Of course not. <laughs> what an enigma that drink is. I drink it every night. I could not tell you what flavour it is. And <laughs> no idea. I'd have my mouth full of Dr. Pepper with all my other senses shut off. I'd be like, it tastes like a sexy battery. Are you happy? It tastes like a sexy battery. James Acaster, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Can I tell you, I feel like that Dr. Pepper humor is something that would play distinctly differently in America and in the UK. Yeah, I'd say so. I think, um, so like last year I came to the US for the first time to do some shows and uh, I was getting ready to film uh, the show that that clip's from. And uh, that Dr. Pepper routine, uh, so I originally did it in a show four years ago and then just didn't do it for ages and resurrected it for this. And um, it did better in the UK than it used to because more people drink Dr. Pepper now. But it did a lot better over here where uh, a lot of people, you know, it's been a part of the, the culture for a very long time, a I, rich part of the culture. I feel like maybe Americans going to see a British stand-up, they're just sitting there and they got 20 minutes of like hard work. 
Sure. Know? Like absolutely. they're sitting there, they're like, okay, I'm putting the pieces together. Yeah. <laughs> I'm listening carefully. I got to understand a different yeah. accent. I got to, occasionally they might say Lori. Yeah. Uh, and then they get to a Dr. Pepper thing. It's like, oh, I'm home free, baby. Yeah, yeah. Dr. <laughs> Pepper humor? Yeah, sure. That's what that's the tweets start rolling in. I like I get all the happy tweets. Um, there's a thing later on in one of the shows where I talk about lollipop men and lollipop women uh, back in the UK, and you don't have those here. You have crossing guards here, uh, so like that's what they are. And, uh, I was like, "Is it, does a lollipop mean?" I was literally sitting there thinking, "Like, is a lollipop is that what?" Is that what a popsicle is called in the UK? Yeah. I'm like trying to put the pieces together. Yeah, exactly. It's very confusing for people here. And I had to Google it and find out, oh, it's a crossing guard. When you started doing comedy, were you trying to be, I mean, I don't know what the British equivalent is, but were you trying to be a classic Jay Leno, Jerry Seinfeld uh, observational comedian and like keep it light, relate to everyone? I think I discovered the stories that worked the best were the ones that honed in on small little details and uh, it was me getting obsessed with something tiny and going over and over it. There's this one story, that was the first story I had that worked and it was about me holding a grudge against uh, the ticket man at Kettering train station in England uh, and how like how much I hated this man. I didn't realise that the reason the routine worked so well is because it was a long routine that was me just focusing on this tiny little detail about this guy and, and really taking uh, offence to it. And uh, what I thought I thought the routine worked because it was about uh, a kind of flaw in my personality and showing me in a bad light that I was bearing all these grudges for no reason. And so I wrote loads of routines about what a scumbag I was, uh, and none of them worked at all. It was like, you know, just all the negative things about me and all the things I was ashamed of, and none of those worked. And then I kind of had to go right back to square one again and go, okay, it wasn't that, so what was it? And then eventually you figure out that it was the minutiae stuff. I would have just thought that it was train stuff. Yeah, yeah, you, I could have, I could have very easily become the train comic. I've just been doing that, the, like mid-level train gags. I feel like in the UK, there's a lot of room there for train comedy, especially. Well, I mean, I think here we don't have a national rail service. Yes, you know, and Amtrak doesn't have the right of way, so they have to wait for freight trains. So it's very difficult to. Yeah, but I feel like in the UK. Well, yeah, but that's the thing. You see, we've all got train stories, right? So, what, what, especially when you're coming up. Every comic has a routine about that involves the trains because that's our lives. And so I think early on I was like, I can't be a comic whose all of my routines are about trains, hotels, and gigs that I've done. Right. Because then it's all just about the lifestyle of a comic. Right. I mean, it's like it's the, the classic cliched American comedian material is uh, airplane food. Sure. You know. Yeah. It's because they're always getting airplanes, you know. So like you kind of write about what you know what's going on with you oh, unless you start lying in your specials and say you're an undercover cop but what idiot would do that <laughs> what idiot would do that when you started stand-up comedy you had been in a couple of bands were you in those bands thinking that you were going to become a real life full-time professional musician i thought i was going to become one of the most influential musicians of all time that's what i genuinely believed uh and uh you know, embarrassing to say that now, but uh, at the time, I thought, I, I, I didn't necessarily think that that would happen, but I, I wanted that to happen. That's what the aim was, was to do this band, sound like nobody else has ever sounded, influence all who come after us, and that was kind of the aim. I was like, you know, late teens. I think at that age, if you're in a band, that's how you've got to feel about it. If you're 17 and in a band, and your main thing is how do we get a record deal and how are we going to get like to the top of the charts and sell loads of records, then you've, you've 
that's too early to kind of like resign yourself to that sort of cynicism when it comes to creating stuff. And I think, or if you're just in a Beatles cover band, yeah, or something like yeah, or that, weddings yeah. and yeah, yeah. Well, there's a guy who like you know my I was in a, I was in a band with one other guy. It was me and my friend Graham, and that was the whole band. And uh, his plumber was in a covers band. And, and, and when we were when we were gonna. We we decided we were stopping the band. We were, we were I was twenty two at this point. By the way, I just want to be clear. I'm not laughing at the prospect of a plumber being in the band. I'm yeah. laughing at the prospect of your friend having a plumber. Yeah, like yeah, a, sure. like he's got like oh, I, I got a guy. Yeah, yeah, I got yeah, a guy. yeah. Well, basically, his very house, musical. His house needed so much plumbing. This guy was there all the time. Like he was always <laughs> there, and they would talk about music. And Graham was like, "Yeah, we're writing these songs." And this guy was like, "Yeah, well, I'm learning other people's songs." And um, and he never really understood. Because obviously his covers band was playing to loads more people than us. So they were getting booked for proper gigs where they were getting paid and doing functions and stuff. And we were just going around the country, not getting paid for gigs, playing to hardly anyone and writing our own music. And he was always like, I don't get why you're doing this. Like, it's so much easier doing what I'm doing. Why aren't you doing this? And uh, we'd always be like, because we want to make a difference and an impact. He's like, yeah, but no one does that. You're not going to do that. No one ever does that. <laughs> and uh, when we when we decided to split up, we also decided to record all of our songs, even though we were not continuing to be in a band anymore. And uh, we were going to go into the, a proper recording studio for a month and, and record. just memorialize your failure? Yeah. And, just like, we, 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 and we did it. We slept on the floor for a month for this studio and we recorded 17 songs and the album's over an hour long. And this guy was going, I don't understand why you're doing this. And we were like, we just really want to do it. We don't want to forget these songs. He was like, I don't understand. And I think one day we just kind of lost our temper with him. and like, well, if you wrote your own songs, maybe you'd understand. I like really kind of like angrily at him. But um, it was, it was, it, it's a lot of passion went into the whole thing and it was uncompromising. And I listen to it now and I can see uh, plenty of reasons why it did not do what we wanted it to do. But I'm glad that I was in something where we just didn't listen to anyone else and just did whatever we wanted. I think that's important. I mean, were you making music that people would have liked, potentially like to have bought and or enjoyed? Like music that leads, yeah. the kind of music that leads to a professional music career? I think it was potentially it could have been, but like it would have taken us a long time to really, we, we needed a proper singer who could sing. Uh-huh. And we didn't have that, and so right. we, we so that's had a, to. That's a big challenge. It's a huge thing. If you don't yeah. have a. I mean, it's hard to hit the charts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without... I mean, we we basically both learned to sing for the project, and we couldn't. I definitely couldn't sing. My singing teacher on the first lesson told me that she couldn't teach me. That it was going to be impossible. <laughs> uh, that's. Sad. I mean, you know, and also we didn't um, write you know, one vocal melody for the song and both sing it and stuff like that. We both wrote our separate vocal lines for the song and just sang them at the same time. So, like, we were both singing two lead parts over the top of one another for most of the songs. Um, and it wasn't like we were doing a call and response or anything. It was just two separate songs that we were both singing over these uh, over these tracks. Even more still to get into with James Acaster. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is James Acaster. He's a stand-up comic from London. He starred in the 2021 special Cold Lasagna, Hate Myself, 1999. He's also the author of three books, including the brand new James Acaster's Guide to Quitting Social Media. 
When he and I talked in 2018, he just released his special repertoire, which is four hours long. Four separate hours, but still four hours. Let's get back into our conversation. I read somewhere, and I couldn't quite tell if it was a joke, but I read somewhere that you decided to uh, skydive and do stand-up. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that was like when I, I mean, did, not at the same time. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was when I did my first ever gig. So, like, my first ever gig was when I was twenty-one, so still in the band. But um, I was, I'd, I'd had a car crash, and I got really uh, scared of dying, and really obsessed with dying for a long time. And so I did a bunch of things that were like on a sort of bucket list of like I want to experience this. And one was a skydive. I did that, and then one was uh, try stand-up comedy, and I did like, a gig, and then I kind of did a gig. Once every like four months, uh, just for fun. What were the circumstances of the car crash? Uh, that one was I just passed my test, and then eight days later, I was driving home late at night on some back roads, like some little twisty country roads, and went round a corner too fast in the dark. There was mud all over the road, which I was not aware of, and I just skidded, went off the road, and like just kind of pinballed against a hedge on the floor for a while, stopped. And then tried to drive home still. But what happened was I went into the road, the engine died, and then I was just sitting there. And then a car was coming really fast towards me, and a car was coming really fast behind me. And they both saw me at the last minute, tried to overtake me on the same side and hit into each other. I went into a ditch, and then they both got out. And everyone was fine. But I got, there was a point where my car was balancing on the, the two wheels on the right, and it was like balancing and teetering. And it was either going to go on its roof, in which case, because I wasn't going fast enough, it wouldn't roll and it was just going to smash and I'd probably break my neck or it was going to go onto four wheels. And it went onto four wheels. But I think like I had like a day of being really proud I'd had this crash and telling everyone about it, like I was cool. And then I remember it snowed that day. At, uh, I was, I was at uh, college and it snowed. I remember going to my friend Graham's car, the same Graham that I was in a band with, and I, I slipped while, while walking down a hill and landed on my back really hard. I remember people laughing at me. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty funny. And then I went to the car with Graham and he, he hadn't, he'd left his lights on all day so the battery was dead. So we had to call the, the, uh, the services to come out and start it again. And we were there for an hour laughing at like how unfortunate that was. And then he got me home and my family had gone out for the evening. And it was just me on my own in this house. And it was really dark. And I had a bit of a day of being a loser. And I remember looking into, I was, I was, I had my dinner on my own, and I was washing up my plate, and I saw my reflection, and remembered balancing in that on the, those right two wheels, and then for oh, yeah, I could have died, and then actually for the like properly realizing what that would have meant, and then for six months I was not okay. Like uh, as soon as I thought about that, for six months I was just thinking all the time about that, about being dead, and uh, and it was yeah, it was really. But then it meant oh, I did a few good things, and also. <laughs> uh, not not as scared of death anymore. That wasn't the only car crash that has like punctuated your life and career, right? Yeah, yeah. I had like two others. So like there was one after the band split up, we did our final gig, and then I fell asleep on a dual carriageway. So that was that one. And we and what is a into dual a carriageway? Oh, sorry, that's like a it's like a so um, like goof off at all. It's like a yeah, it's like a goof off. Uh, it's like a small freeway. Got it. Uh, so yeah, it's like two lanes uh in each uh on each side right um and uh yeah i fell asleep on that 
woke up, smashed into, smashed into the central reservation, smashed into a lorry, did that a lot, stopped and no one was hurt. And that one I wasn't scared afterwards. That one I didn't get existential because there were other people in the car with me and that meant that I was just relieved that they were okay. Whereas the first one I was on, in the car on my own, so the only thing was I could have died. Um, so even though the second one was more dramatic, I was kind of felt a lot more relieved about it. And then the third one was with Josie Long uh, and uh, our friend Johnny. And that was uh, trying to overtake a log lorry, miscalculating it, having the log lorry run over our car and flip over and all the logs falling on us. And that was very, that was the most dramatic one. And that was the one where I thought, I'm retiring from this now. I'm not going to drive anymore because that is three very narrow escapes where no one got hurt, but they really should have. And I think if I had a fourth one and anyone got hurt in it, it would feel even worse than it than it would do anyway. Because I'd think this really could have been avoided. I I know that I'm not good at this. I mean, so. what's what's amazing to me about your career, at least as as I see it from you know five thousand miles away, mm. is you have you have this career as a minutia obsessed stand up mm-hmm. um, with secret revelations about your actual feelings. You have this parallel career on the radio that's led to a book that's basically just a list of mistakes and bad situations that you've gotten yourself into. Yep. Yes. <laughs> and like I feel like those are uh two very different kinds of guy yeah. merged into one guy here. Yeah, it's weird cuz like I mean all those true stories that I told on the radio and that went into the book they were the things I was doing when I started out in stand-up. These are so, your scrapes. Yeah, yeah. Called. So they got called scrapes on the. I don't like to call them that that much. It was uh, that was someone else called it that. No, one hundred percent your idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but is you it, are you are wearing a t-shirt right now that says "Scrape Master." I am. I am. That is true, actually, for the listener, mm-hmm. and I, and, I, and it's tattooed on mm-hmm. most parts of my body. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that, those kind of. So they were. That's how I started stand up. Was everything had to be true, and that was a rule I had. Was that everything had to be true and don't lie to them. And then what happened was the audience didn't believe me. I would tell them those <laughs> stories and they thought it wasn't true. And uh, it meant they would stop laughing because everything is... Because when you're trying to sell something, I think if you're openly lying and they know you're lying, it's fine. But if you're saying this happened and they think you're lying, they don't laugh because they, they think we're not idiots and you're kind of like... Um, so like I just stopped telling them on stage and started openly lying instead and f- ha- having a lot more fun with that and felt like I was actually able to be a lot more honest about thoughts and feelings and stuff like that by lying um but those stories kind of yeah were just dormant for ages and then my friend josh widdicombe uh, got a radio show and was just like he started started stand up at the same time as me he remembered all those stories and he just was like do you want to come on and just tell one of them a week because you know it's got this material you're doing nothing with and it's made so much more sense on the radio because you know on the radio why would i lie to my friends, to their faces. Like, they're sitting there with Josh and one other guest who I pretty much always know who's another comic and the producer who I knew. And, like, they would grill me as well so much on all the details that if I if I did have the, you know, um, if I did lie, <laughs> then they would have busted me on it really quickly because they would have asked questions I wouldn't have known what to say. So um, people just believed them again and then found it a lot more fun. Uh, and so, yeah, it is weird that it's kind of grown like that now, though. How there's these two, you know, the book came out last year, and the all those stand-up specials came out this year, and they're, they're both kind of like together. They're the result of ten years of work, really, of my whole career. 
And it is strange how different they are. What did your mom and dad think about your non-university-going, band-failing, I'm-going-to-become-a-stand-up-comedian lifestyle? Well, the stand-up comedian part was the bit they were relieved about because it was their... There wasn't an idea, but they suggested it before I thought about doing it. So, like, they um, they always just let us do what we wanted. And like, my parents are like, my dad is a teacher. My mum uh, has been a teacher as well at, at points in her career. And, um, you know, they're proper, you know, they're, they're proper uh, smart. Uh, they never kind of, like, made us feel like we had to do the same as them. And uh, me, my, my brother and my sister. So, like, I think my dad... Because sick form is two years. So you get 16 and then you stay on sick form for two years. And I said, I'm just going to leave. Uh, you know, at, at the end of school, I was like, I'm just going to leave. I'm going to do music. And my dad was like, do one year of sick form. And if you don't like it, you can quit. But if you, know, if you feel like doing another year after that, you do that. And then you'll get, you know, you get your A-levels at the end as a good qualification. And uh, that was the deal that he made of me. And I, so I did one year and I thought, no, I don't like it. And I quit. And he was fine with it. And uh, nowadays he says how he he couldn't believe it. Like he didn't let on. He was very cool about it all. But he was like, I can't believe he's actually done this. Because like he thought I'd get to the end of one year and go, well, I may as well do another year because I've done a year already. It wasn't hard. I'll do another one and get a qualification. And he was astounded that I actually went, there you go. Did my part of the deal. I'm not doing it anymore. And he didn't have anything to stand on. So he was like, okay, fine. And then when I was in the band, they were occasionally they'd vocalize a bit of concern. They'd be like, yeah, this music's a bit weird. I've been in more accessible bands before that. And so they were like, okay, this one's really tough and people aren't really going for it. And, um, you were know, you, were you living at home? I was living at home and, uh, I lived at home until I was 24, 25. Um, and they were, and they were like, yeah, I don't know what you And because I'd started doing stand up, I'd done like a gig every four months or whatever. And my friends had, and I think my sister had come to see one of them as well. And they just seen me have good gigs because I didn't care about stand-up. And so I'd often have good gigs before I started doing it properly. <laughs> and um, and then people were just telling my parents, he's really funny, he should be doing this. And so they were kind of suggesting to me, why don't you do stand-up instead? Which is that's when you know you've really kind of, you've really wow. tested your parents if they're going, well, what would be a more secure and safe path for you career-wise would be stand-up comedy? Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think they were quite relieved when I started doing it, which is... <laughs> It's not common. So much more to get into with James A. Castor. After the break, we'll talk about the different ways comics in the U.S. and U.K. develop their material and how James has struggled to bring his comedy stateside. Back in a minute, it's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey there, I'm Ellen Weatherford. And I'm Christian Weatherford. And we've got big feelings about animals that we just got to share. On Just the Zoo of Us, your new favorite animal review podcast, we're here to critically evaluate how each animal excels and how it doesn't, rating them out of 10 on their effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Guest experts give you their takes informed by actual, real-life experiences studying and working with very cool animals like sharks, cheetahs, and sea turtles. It's a field trip to the zoo for your ears. So if you or your kids have ever wondered if a pigeon can count, why sloths move so slow, or how a spider sees the world, find out with us every Wednesday on Just the Zoo of Us in its natural habitat on MaximumFun.org. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is stand-up comic James Acaster. He starred in the specials Repertoire and Cold Lasagna Hate Myself 1999. What did you figure out about who you were through the first five years, seven years of doing stand-up? That was just like a long process of just like uh, doing different shows and like picking up on different things. It was like, I think first of all was the minutiae stuff and being like, I talk about stuff like that. And then there was a time where like I discovered that if I did gigs where I dressed like it's just a little bit, uh, a little bit weird, not like completely wacky, but like just something was a little bit off or a little bit geeky about me. I'd have a better show because they would like, often laugh before I got to the mic because I looked different to the other comics on the bill or something like that. And Basically just like wearing a sweater. That was all it was to begin with. To begin with, it was like, well, I had a sweater and uh, slacks. I'd be wearing slacks and shoes and a sweater and like a polo shirt underneath, which for someone who was in their mid-20s, just dressing way too old, too young. And uh, that that established me to the audience a bit quicker and meant that I could then do the kind of jokes I wanted to do. Because they were like, when they don't know who you are, it helps that they can look at you and go, I know what I want to hear from this guy, like straight away by looking at you. And so I was just trying to kind of go, flag it up like this is what <laughs> this is what we're going to be talking about. So they go, cool, cool, because I want that, because I've looked at you and that's, that's what I'd like to hear. So uh, there was that. And, um, and then it just became more like, you know, pulling back a bit more in my persona and not to, and not not going to them as much and that was a whole phase of like really uh honing my writing that way so i'd leave really big pauses and um i wouldn't i just be really really low energy so the material had to be good so i had to really work on my writing and get my writing to just kind of do all the work for me so i wasn't helping it in any way and then and then after that learning how to sell it a bit more and going okay you can do the writing now so now learn how to perform properly and um like that, that tour with Josie Long led straight into a tour with Milton Jones who's a one-liner comic back home and uh those two tours really really helped me because with Josie her audience want to see you um experimenting and uh doing stuff that's a bit unusual and so I was kind of finding that those kind of routines worked a bit better and I was writing stuff that suited that a bit more and then Milton's audience really like concise jokes and one-liners so i had to take the routines i've done with josie and really punch up a lot of my punchlines and stuff like that and um probably doing more mainstream kind of like punchlines than i even do now but like you know just learning how to write a joke with his audience and i think those two tours back to back really that really cemented what i was going to be doing like uh for a while after that although there was a stage i, I did my first debut show was kind of based on those and then my second show was when I decided I wanted to do routines that were really wringing everything out of every subject. So my second show was like a bunch of five to seven minute routines, just one after the other, where I just stay on one subject for a long time. Um, but then, yeah, again, it's like after that, there's another phase and another. I think there's always got to be another. You, if you sit in it for too long, I don't know, it kind of gets a bit stale and a bit old, and you don't get as enthusiastic, and uh, and then you have to go kind of go. What's what's the next thing that I'm going to do that's going to be a bit different, you know? So in in the United States, comics tend to kind of generate material on a rolling basis, mm. um, sometimes even on stage. Yes. Um, and, you know, refine it to a really sharp point over a long period of time. Yeah. In the UK, 
comics, especially headlining comics, work almost in the in a reverse order, which is to say that there's a kind of comedy year that starts at the Edinburgh Comedy, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, um, with a show, and comics will take some time, you know, months maybe, to write their hour, mm-hmm. then perform it as a show. Often a more a, a more theatrical experience, you know, more narrative, more thematically based than American stand-up. Your series of Netflix specials is basically three of those years worth of material that mm-hmm. you had performed at Edinburgh and toured the country, and then a, an, another special that is like a mix of old stuff and new themes. Mm-hmm. And that is like by far the most audacious set of stuff to go out as comedy specials that I am familiar with. <laughs> like, was there ever a point where you were just like, I'm just going to take the best 15 minutes from each of the last four years' hours? Or was there always the plan, I'm presenting a set, a group of things that go together? Yeah, it was always that plan. I, I think because I was on tour, I was watching a lot of YouTube before I went to bed. And one of the YouTube videos I discovered, so I like film theories and fan theories about films. And I really got into the Pixar theory, which is the theory that all the Pixar films are telling one story that and they've been released at different times on the timeline, uh, but that it's, it's one story about an apocalypse and that's where all the... Pixar films take place and uh, I really love the Pixar film I really love people reading into it far too much and you know I know that the theory is not true but what I like about it is people making it true themselves and it's like a fun extra creative thing for the fans to do and um, it was that thing where then I was doing these shows one after the other every night and I was noticing links between them anyway because they're all about crime and so I was able to do little callbacks to the shows and I think there was the first show I'm talking about being an undercover cop and I've infiltrated a gang and the second show there's a small routine where I mentioned that I used to be in a gang and because they were a year apart originally I never put those two things together but when you're doing them one night after the other and I know I noticed the second night whenever I said I used to be in a gang it would get a laugh and it never really used to and I was like why is that getting a laugh now like, oh yeah yesterday you were in a gang so they think you're doing a callback and so I started thinking about my own show in the Pixar theory terms and going, well, if they can do it with some films they've not even written, these fans, I can do it with my own show. And originally I was just going to have like a post-credits thing. I was going to do all three of the shows and have a post-credits thing where it said what happened to me after the... Because I figured out that, that one show was actually a prequel. And I, and I wanted like a little, you know, this is what happened to James after this. You need like, you know, there's that guy who works for Marvel and he's in charge of the Marvel universe as a Star Wars yeah. person too. Yes. Like you're basically trying to create a James Acaster cinematic universe. Yeah, that's what it turned into. And because the people who were filming the specials with me are really into that kind of stuff, they're my friends, they're, they're an independent uh, company, production company. And when I told them about this, they're, cause they're totally into fan so they're like okay so there's this this and this and like my tour manager as well is really into that kind of thing so i was just talking to these people about it all the time and uh then i thought i can't put it all like if i put it all as a post credits thing it's actually gonna go on for ages it's gonna be a really long load of writing explaining how the gap between one show and the other and i thought if i just do another show that fills the gap and i've got all this material that i've relearned anyway that's the right length of time 
and I'll just apply a narrative to it that fills the gap and I'll do it like that. And But I'd already figured out a way that I could film it for no extra cost. So I said, yeah, I've figured out a way that I could do four shows instead of three and it, and it all costs us the same amount of money and take the same amount of time. And they were like, fine, if you want to do that, then you can do it. And, uh, <laughs> and so, so then I had four. But yeah, that it kind of like that part of the plan developed literally the year that we filmed them or me touring the shows. I mean, for a series of stand-up comedy specials where the microphone cables are color-coordinated, it's a pretty unpretentious set of performances. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's kind of... The, the whole persona has always been an idiot, like a, like a, a kind of a high-status idiot. So, like, you know, I think uh, all those things... It's kind of... In terms of like the mic lead matching my shoelaces and my outfits matching the backdrops and uh, clearly I've had a custom mic stand made and stuff like that that matches the stool. Like, I think your instinct when you think about doing those things is, oh no, people will think that's stupid. And then you go, oh, I'm a stand-up comedian. So, <laughs> so good. Uh, and so so like a lot of it was that was like I'd think about doing something and go no people will think that's dumb and I'll go oh no that's what you want so then you go with it and do it so it was always these things where even if people like them and think oh that's cool that he's done that and that's nice it's still dumb and it's still like not sometimes people take it too seriously sometimes people have tweeted me and complained that gone they, they always think that I haven't noticed and they've gone, dude, you really should have like looked at the backdrop before you chose your outfit for this show because you pretty much disappear into the backdrop and it's ridiculous. And like that's my only criticism, mate. And, like I was saying, and, and, like, oh, okay, fine. I mean, you don't respond to it because there's no point pointing out to them. Maybe I did that on purpose because it's wrong and you're not supposed to do it. But um, yeah, it's. Uh, I think I got away with like, I definitely feel like at times I am pretentious about it and I definitely think I had to think about it pretentiously and take myself too seriously off stage in order to make them. But I think definitely on stage, uh, no point do I look. I don't know. I, mean, it, it, I do look pretty stupid for most of it. I mean, it is nice relative to being in a band that if you do something ridiculous and or pretentious, you can just play it off as, oh yeah, that's my stage character. Absolutely. Every time. <laughs> this is what it's meant to happen. I'm dumb. He's it's, it's a, it's a, a clown. So yeah. James A. Castor, thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. It was really nice to get to know you. Thanks for having me, man. James A. Castor from 2018. His new book is called James A. Castor's Guide to Quitting Social Media. If you haven't seen his latest special, Cold Lasagna Hate Myself, 1999, it is really funny. James is a very funny, very smart dude. You can buy that special on Vimeo. That's where it is, on Vimeo. So go buy it there. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. My home is completely consumed by the computer game SimCity 4. I figured out that you can download SimCity 4 to your contemporary computers from 2003. Uh, but it works pretty good on your computer, and now me and all my children are just compulsively building cities. 
Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fund is Tabitha Myers. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme music is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Thanks to The Go Team for sharing it with us, along with their label Memphis Industries. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us there. Give us a follow. We'll share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.